We're back. We're back. Hi. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it's been it's been so long since I've heard from you. <laughs> really has. <laughs> A long 24 hours. Anyway, for those who have missed our most recent episode, the first of two episodes, um, as we are coming back from coming back, as we are coming up to a year on from COVID in the UK, um, give a bit of background. We wanted to spend a couple of moments recognising and hearing directly from those who have been working on the NHS front line, who we don't necessarily realise are on the front line, um, our unsung NHS heroes, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Sorry, I cut you off there mid-sentence. But um, what I was <laughs> going to say, so if you haven't actually listened to part one of this, um, of this like two-part episode, we really encourage you to give it a listen as well, either before this episode or after this episode. You don't have to worry about the ordering. Um, and take a moment to hear from Meg, who is our speech and language therapist, who has been very much on the front line working with patients as they recover from COVID or kind of helping with ventilators and all that sort of stuff. So really, really um, major, major stuff. Um, and then today we're going to hear from our second speaker, which is Lauren. So hello, welcome back. We have Lauren with us, who is our second interviewee for this episode. Lauren, very welcome. We're lovely. Very happy to have you with us. We are also hello. lovely, by the we way. We are lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. It's nice to have been invited. And Lauren works in the corporate function or corporate side of the NHS, um, which is a bit different from who we've kind of heard from already. Um, and is it definitely in the spirit of our theme for, for this week's podcast. Um, so Lauren, feel free to kind of explain to us a little bit more about your job in a little bit more detail in terms of what it normally entails. And then especially kind of now what it has entailed in COVID times. Of course. So my official title is elective care improvement manager. Wow. So it's a, a typically <laughs> long-winded corporate job title in the NHS. Um, so I work in what is known as the elective care uh, improvement team. Um, and, you know, every trust has one. Uh, like the main function is basically to kind of monitor, manage and improve the trust's um, elective performance. Um, so it's a lot of um, sort of working with the operational teams on the various hospital sites uh, along with the kind of business informatics function. My role is kind of like working with the operational teams like the director, directors of operations on the various hospital sites to, to improve the, the performance, the elective performance, um, working with the informatics function, a lot of looking at data um, and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, it's partly sort of uh, looking at, look at our demand. So patient waiting time, sizes of the waiting list and, and uh, backlog versus the capacity and thinking about how we can reduce that, implementing improvement plans and you know process improvements and sort of partly looking at the data quality issues. So ensuring our waiting lists are clean and our processes mm. are streamlined and minimizing delays and stuff like that. So um, yeah, just kind of basically seeking to improve patient flow, making sure patients get treated in good time normally um pre-covid anyway 
And then in COVID, is it how, what kind of role have you had? Have you, has your role stayed quite similar? Have you been brought in to do new things that you maybe didn't do before? Or is it stayed the same? Yeah, I've had, I don't even know what my job's been the last year. It's been everything and nothing all at once. Um, so obviously the, the whole point of my role is to kind of manage, uh, you know, the performance of how we're treating elective patients, but that, you know, from the beginning of uh first wave we we cancelled all of our elective patients so you know as soon as March kind of came around or beginning of April the kind of directive was everything that is not urgent is going to be cancelled operations uh, appointments etc so I mean we're talking millions of patients if you can imagine like Hmm. I work for the biggest trust in the country and so that is you know that's tremendous amount of patients bearing in mind you know the NHS is so stretched for capacity anyway that we have surgeries and appointments booked up years and a year in advance so it was it was a huge huge task at first and so obviously because we weren't necessarily reporting on the same kind of KPIs that we ordinarily would be the idea was kind of a all hands on deck go to you know the various hospital sites say you know what what can I do so it was a lot of like literally sitting there calling patients cancelling surgeries which was quite difficult obviously Mm. as you can imagine to you know for people that maybe have been waiting like a year for their surgery anyway um so doing all that kind of stuff and then over the summer things kind of slightly returned to normal we started doing some more elective work so um it was a bit of a mishmash of like working through the backlog of what had been cancelled and making sure everyone was on a waiting list and stuff and then kind of business as usual um activity um, and then obviously the second third wave it was much 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 worse than before um and so we were asked to kind of be sort of unofficially redeployed to the actual hospital site to kind of just do whatever really like anything from standing in the reception directing bank and agency ITU nurses to the right ward to stocking pharmaceuticals on the shelves overnight to get the wards ready for COVID patients in the morning Mm. um all, all sorts of stuff so I have been predominantly working in the vaccination hub which is um it's been set up to vaccinate the staff and also then kind of doing a lot of the back end um uploading data to the national system on who we vaccinated and stuff like that so it's been a real wild ride (laughs) yeah yeah and you've even because I remember we talked about this before so you've been in a situation haven't you where you kind of will be maybe home based for a couple of days and then you get sent off you're in the hospital you have to stay in a random hotel kind of on your own and then come back in just kind of keep that separation while you're working in the hospital and yeah, yeah, 100%. It's, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's been difficult because, you know, you, you, you kind of wake up on Monday and um, kind of metaphorically turn up for work, you know, in your mind from your dining room table. And you just don't know what you're going to be doing. You don't know whether you're going to be told, actually, tomorrow I need you to come in and work on a ward or I need you to come in and, I don't know, upload vaccination data or whatever it may be. So it's, it's very changeable. And then also kind of in the back of your mind, you have the kind of thing of like, but at some point soon we're going to return to to business as usual and I'm going to have a hell of a lot of work to do and a a massive backlog to deal with so you're kind of you know a bit all over the place really yeah I can imagine that the inconsistency of it though is like alone is is probably Mm. quite um just difficult to manage and deal with with your family and friends and everything like that I know we've all had to Mm -hmm. adjust but that you know you're not knowing where you're going one week to the other I can't even imagine like yeah 
that was the difficult thing as well because I've been living um out of London with my parents the last three months so it is quite a journey for me to get up to London I mean that's my personal circumstances that's that's no one's fault but just the kind of I did feel super uncomfortable at first like going to work on the wards um you know we don't have PPE obviously why would we we're not you know clinical but just with a flimsy mask sort of standing in the middle of a hospital full of COVID patients kind of thinking well I'm going back home later to my 60 odd year old parents I don't really know how safe this is but um you know it is what it is I guess everyone has to do their bit don't they (laughs) It's really interesting you talking about that. Do you think that's been one of the biggest kind of concerns, the the link between home and family? Because I think the other thing that really I found really striking is I actually didn't even realise that you'd had to kind of call up patients and cancel some of their appointments. And as you're saying, some of these are 12 months in advance. I can imagine that was emotionally traumatic for them, but also for you to have to keep doing that on repeat. I'm sure some people were very angry, some people were very upset, confused. Like, do you think yeah, I mean, I guess the over question, what have been some of your biggest challenges? Apart, I mean, obviously, the day to day, but yeah. I mean, yeah, like, so thinking about when, you know, we were calling patients and cancelling them, surprisingly, you know, 99% of the people I spoke to were actually incredibly understanding, incredibly sympathetic, which interestingly is not consistent with my previous experiences BC before COVID of you know when I was you know years ago when I used to work in a reception area in the NHS or you know whatever when I was you know in the beginning stages of my career in patient facing roles you know the majority of the time I always it was it was difficult it was always difficult patients can be can be incredibly I know oftentimes abusive and and you know especially when you're cancelling appointments and stuff whilst it's obviously disappointing for them it can it can get quite nasty and so I think I was bracing myself to receive a similar kind of attitude but actually on the phone when I was cancelling appointments I mean everyone was was so supportive and and really quite kind about it so that was that was really nice but um yeah it it's it is really quite difficult to let people down in that way and you know even though your hands are tied it's it's never a nice thing to have to do um but yeah that that is probably been the biggest the biggest challenge really is just trying to manage people's expectations um in terms of when you're cancelling their appointment to be able to sign off the conversation and say but we'll give you a call or you'll get an appointment in x amount of weeks we just don't know so that's yeah. that's oh. been really difficult not is being that still able the to same? oh sorry i was going to say is that is that still the same now if you're talking, are you still not kind of able to plan when things will get rearranged or is it <clears throat> easing off a little bit? Well, there's this kind of sense of, of like something's going to happen soon, like given, uh, you know, off the back of the announcement on Monday, you know, there's a kind of uh, a widely accepted sort of uh, sense of we are going to be returning to business as usual soon. And when it happens, I think it's just going to be incredibly chaotic because I can imagine, you know, NHSE and NHSI and the commissioners are going to expect the same kind of level of reporting and the same kind of, um, you know, sort of standard of, uh, you know, information. And and we're going to really have to hit the ground running on that. But in terms of how we're interacting with the patients, I don't exactly know. We're working on what our capacity is going to look like at the moment. But um, one thing I think is that that we are trying to work on is sort of gauging 
actually how many patients still want or need their procedures and and treatments because you know you've got people that have been on the waiting list for a year two years um now because of covid so actually you know whilst you're looking at a waiting list of however many patients maybe there's a there's a whole portion of those people that have gone private or their symptoms have resolved so that's the other challenge is actually how do we wade our way through that backlog um when without necessarily knowing whether everybody still anybody still wants to come in or whether they're fearful about coming in because of covid because that's always a challenge as well so Mm. gosh because that's some kind of stuff that you don't I I mean I wouldn't even have thought about is like the next (laughs) steps after covid I feel like we're in the covid bubble and you guys have to kind of think ahead like uh, you know that's quite far ahead in my mind not knowing yeah. these things so I can imagine that is quite tough I wonder if you know just out out of pure interest in terms of the you've kind of mentioned the, the challenges that you faced and actually that when you've been talking to people on the phone they haven't actually they've been quite understanding you haven't necessarily had to deal with as much kind of of the negative side of things uh, as as it stands anyway in terms of like the job that you are doing have you kind of had and like a particularly like a good experience or have you seen you know patients coming through that you've interacted with where they've kind of come out the other side or has it has it actually just been quite tough for you to kind of get through the day does that kind of make sense like yeah yeah. anything that stands out as being actually quite good that's happened yeah no absolutely like I think particularly working in the vaccination hub has been a really um it's been tough but it's been a really rewarding experience um, I mean, ultimately, at the moment, <clears throat> the purpose of the the purpose of the vaccination hub is is predominantly to to vaccinate staff, um, and obviously uh, the elderly and extremely clinically vulnerable in the surrounding areas. Um, but it's it's such a it's so different, obviously, to the kind of corporate role that I'm normally in, and it's very physically exhausting. It's like it's like doing a shift in a restaurant. It's like 10 hours on your feet. You don't get a break. It's constantly talking to people, constantly, you know, sort of interacting with people, which after a year of isolation is quite hard. Mm. Um, I haven't seen so many people in a really long time, but um, it's so nice um, to kind of see, have a sort of a tangible um, kind of, output you know you can actually see how you're directly impacting directly helping people um and it it is quite a nice vibe like everyone comes down and queues up and everyone's kind of like giddy in the queue because they're getting their vaccine and um you know like the older people as well like they're obviously like absolutely gassed like they're so happy to be there and uh it's just it is really is really nice and everyone's kind of having a bit of banter and for the most part people are like super polite um Mm. when people come out from having their vaccine you know most people come and personally thank us even though all we've done is like help them fill out their paperwork and put them in a queue um and told them to go and stand in another queue and when they finish that queue go and stand in another queue um (laughs) you know everyone's been really like grateful really pleased to be there there's a really positive optimistic vibe and you know whilst as I said it is physically exhausting and a bit of a pain to have to do so much traveling um and stuff it it is generally positive um and it's it's great to see it gives you a bit of hope it is such a huge thing and some of these people might not have seen family and friends for months you know maybe longer and you're some of the first people that they're interacting with and that's quite special 
like be involved with that yeah it definitely is a sense of like not to over inflate my importance because obviously I'm I'm but a small cog in a very big machine but there is a sense of like being part of something quite monumental and part of something quite you know that that will part of history really isn't it you know like every 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 single person like right down to the security guard on the front desk to the the lady that works in the cafe to whoever anybody in that hospital building um you know can say that they're part of this like amazing effort and something that will probably never be forgotten and it is quite a quite a good feeling really on you know after quite a crap year um yeah it's nice to be part of that for sure yeah. Is there is there, is there anything because I thought so that first off I thought that's the thing that you, you find when you speak to people is that you just realize the, the intricate web that is the NHS and all the people that have been involved <laughs> like you've just mentioned people that work in the cafe for example that actually make sure that everyone's being able to eat on their shifts or you know people who are the security guards keeping everyone safe they're people that aren't necessarily kind of when we are, you know, when before we were out on a Thursday clapping for the NHS, I'm not sure that these people are always front of mind as well. And it's so important because it's also intrinsic. Um, I was going to say, is there anything through your experience of others kind of surprised you? Kind of in what you've been doing or just maybe in terms of, yeah, maybe general NHS reaction or more publicly, just yeah, any surprises throughout this kind of period? Um, I mean trying to keep it positive I guess I mean there have been a well few you don't have to, negative... I say you don't have to keep it positive like you want to hear your story and how you've been like you don't need you know this is the reality of what it's been like and it has been tough I don't know if I'd say it's a surprise but more of a kind of rude awakening in a way I don't know but um what one thing that was quite difficult um <clears throat> was when the government changed the guidance around second dose um so you know right up until the friday we were administering second second doses to people that had had their vaccine three weeks prior coming in on the monday that was no longer allowed to happen and so we were having to turn away um you know itu nurses and doctors that literally had like popped down from theater to get their second dose and we had to say unfortunately no you know and for the most part particularly the clinical particularly the clinical staff were obviously disappointed but very understanding um but what was surprising and not not such a nice way was how some people kind of really took that out on us um like really kind of shoot the messenger sort of sort of thing um i had one particular person i think they were a researcher or I don't know doesn't something non-clinical um just absolutely went off at us absolutely went off at us um what why have you wasted my time I wouldn't have had the first jab if I'd known that I wasn't going to have the second one there's absolutely no evidence or research to support um you know leaving it 12 weeks it's not not safe and all this kind of stuff and I was just like look I am just managing the queue um I don't really know what to tell you write to Boris I don't know um it was you know like things like that and it's not so much surprising as like disappointing I think that was Mm. one of it was a bit of a slap in the face after having such a positive experience generally down there and, and everybody generally being quite grateful and just pleased to be there this kind of sense of like entitlement and obviously everyone's entitled to the vaccine I know that but this kind of attitude of like 
well I want this is this is how I want things to go and Mm. I don't really care that it's not your problem it's not your fault you know um it was just kind of a bit selfish I thought and that was a bit disappointing but um yeah on on the positive side of it I mean again I don't know if it's a surprise more of a you know I'm impressed um just just like the sheer resilience and like the absolute like might of of the effort that everybody that works in the NHS puts towards you know responding to this pandemic and even you know COVID notwithstanding just like on a I mean I've worked in the NHS for nearly 10 years um and showing your age now Lauren (laughs) (laughs) wow um what if I said I didn't actually go to uni and I went uh started working in the education when I was 16 to get out of school uh no but I uh is it's it it's just so it's just so like really heartwarming it's I know it sounds super cheesy but like I have a lot of friends that work in the NHS obviously and I mean everybody's so passionate about it and you you couldn't do any job in the NHS if you didn't care if you weren't passionate about it you know you really have you really have to because it does often rely on people going above and beyond that's how it functions really because you know we're time poor resource poor you know poor in every sense really but uh, not in spirit apparently so <laughs> it, is, yeah. it is it has been really still surprising I guess and impressive how how much effort and how how passionately everybody kind of you know dedicates themselves to the cause it's it's been it's been awesome that's amazing I think what kind of on that first bit that you also mentioned so it just shows doesn't it how the government decisions one some of them have ha- have had to be taken or have been taken very quickly and maybe the lack of consultation like it's really surprising that you guys went in on Monday and suddenly got told oh by the way you can't give out a second dose obviously they consult with SAGE and things like this, but you'd think some of the hospitals would be more involved, especially as you mentioned that you work for the largest trust mm-hmm. in in the country. So it's fascinating how there can sometimes be the disjoint, I suppose, and the, yeah. the ramifications. Um, we are com- yeah, we're completely at the mercy of, of you know, this, this type of guidance that comes out. And I guess don't, you don't really have the autonomy to challenge it, um, particularly not in these times. So, yeah. You just have to go with it, I guess. And I mean, you know, obviously, if if someone if there's an extremely clinically vulnerable or elderly person that really does need the second dose, then I think we are permitted to do that. But just by and large, you know, someone like you, you or I, um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't be able to have it. I mean, I'm I'm still waiting for mine, um, second dose. So you know, like it's not like um people that actually work in the organization are getting any kind of like privilege or whatever yeah, like we're special all... treatment or anything exactly mm. exactly like I said you know you've got these ITU nurses and in any consultants and you know paramedics and stuff and and they're you know they are also having to wait and being patient so yeah yeah I feel like that's going back to the inconsistency point though right like you have to be so hot on your on your heels when Boris has just kind of announced something on a Friday night when everyone's watching BBC news and then you're like oh crap well on Monday we've now got to well I mean do you, do you know what I mean like yeah do it Pack it's my just suitcase crazy isn't go. it yeah <laughs> I, I just couldn't do that in my job I don't think yeah <laughs> I remember, no. I remember at, the, at the beginning of the pandemic as well like it was so uncertain. I, I don't know, you guys, obviously, I'm sure you do remember. 
um, will be burned in our memories forever. But that kind of week, that last week or so of March, when there were all these whispers about what was going to happen and, you know, sort of rumours and, you know, people were just speculating about the kind of scale of, you know, of, the you know, we didn't even know it was, pan- well, we didn't even call it a pandemic at that point, you know, we just had absolutely no idea and I remember kind of the majority of my friends had already been told to work from home and I remember being really quite afraid to get on the tube but having Mm. to still go to work so I ended up walking like six seven miles from Brixton to Whitechapel and back to go to work because I was just in that kind of weird frame frame of mind that weird limbo where you're like okay well I know there's like some kind of like impending tragedy but I'm not quite sure what it is yet. I don't mm. know if it's safe to get on the tube, but I still have to go to work. So I just kind of put on my my walking shoes and walked all the way to Whitechapel. And it was like, it was like the end of the world. There was not a soul in sight. Like a walk yeah. through like, yeah. the bridge, it was like desolate, you know. Um, it was just like pretty eerie. And there was this kind of sense in the hospital. It was almost like the the quiet before the storm you know it was kind of this really horrible tension where everyone was kind of gearing up for something really quite awful um and yeah Yeah. like and then all of a sudden the next week oh no we're in lockdown it's a pandemic don't leave your house (laughs) so yeah no you really do have to keep up with the the rapidly changing uh guidelines and stuff yeah do you think as well because you spoke about obviously that feeling of at the time you're still having to go in you're walking literally for miles <laughs> to, <laughs> to get to work um you know I would like to also add that you know TFL does talk about how clean and safe it is right now and they don't find traces of COVID on on the tube and stuff so we, we can do that if you need to obviously for things like Lauren having to go to work but um do you think you kind of process some of that anxiety and that I'm sure and you you know you spoke earlier about the feeling of you know I'm, I'm going into hospital and then I go home to my parents do you think you've had time to reflect on that or process some of it or do you think you're in autopilot mode and just going through the motions um and maybe it's in a year's time when hopefully things are quote-unquote a bit more normal hopefully back to normal that you'll maybe look back and think oh sh- shit like <laughs> this was huge <laughs> Quite possibly. I mean, I think for, for me, less so as a non-clinical member of staff, um, I, d- I do have a lot of friends that are working clinical roles. And I, I certainly think that the impact on them on their mental health is, is going to be, um, you know, long lasting. Um, I think <laughs> for me, I, I feel like whilst it has been stressful, it's been stressful in a different way to just the regular levels of stress that I experience working in the NHS <laughs> if I'm being honest I've, I've been in you know my my background is in operations so I've worked in a, in a few operational roles which are very fast-paced very um, long hours um, quite demanding and so I guess for me it's just another day at the office in a, in a, in a way like that kind of stress um, and you know in terms of like my living situation my my great very grateful that my my parents um have also been vaccinated along with me so that kind of relieves a lot of a lot of that pressure but you know for other people who who don't because my parents also work in healthcare so they've been vaccinated for that reason but my colleagues um I know that it's quite a source of stress for them and yeah I know I think it's gonna the anxiety will probably you know probably get a bit of a hangover from that in in the months to come for sure 
Yeah, because I think that's something that we were discussing earlier was the the fact that where you have all these people in the NHS that are working on the COVID situation, they've been pulled from their roles where they're not necessarily trained or experienced to do jobs that's com- that are completely new to them. They've seen a lot. They've seen a lot mm-hmm. of really bad stuff. And, you know, COVID is, isn't just going to end in summer. Like it's a long-term thing that's going to have to be consistent. And some of the some of the experiences people have had are going to sit with them forever. And the NHS really needs to step up, I think, in a consistent way in the longer term to provide mental health support and provide advice and services that, you know, the government really needs to put its its head to towards right now from what we've heard anyway, just to make sure that everyone who's working at the NHS is supported long-term. And like yeah, everyone, and doesn't. everyone, 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 everyone who you, even that, you know, like we've said, the cleaners, the the staff who are working here, you would never think, you know, that you'd have to technically worry about quote unquote, everyone needs to be supported. And that's something the government needs to do. Um, and, you know, there's, I feel like there's just a general concern that, you know, once COVID is, COVID is over, that's it. That's it. It's done. It was a phase in time. It was awful and horrific while it happened. And I don't know, I, I wondered, like, if you, again, you know, could talk to Boris or talk to Matt <laughs> Hancock and say, have a chat with them and say something to them. What would you say to them, if, any, if anything? Well, I guess you, yeah, I mean, that does touch on one of my concerns, which is that, when this is all over well, like you say it, it won't ever really be over but when it's all died down I just worry that people are just going to stop caring about the state of the NHS you know I mean I know I, I suppose it's difficult because you you kind of take a lot of reflection from your from your friends and family and colleagues but I suppose I'm kind of in a bit of an echo chamber in that sense because a lot of my friends and family either work in the NHS or healthcare or work in public sector roles or are like-minded people and so obviously you know we are all sharing the same same opinions um, and same concerns but you know I do know that there are a lot of people out there that really just don't understand or perhaps up until this point didn't necessarily understand the the strain the NHS is under and and how it's been sort of chronically abused and underfunded for like a decade and you know you have I think this this whole experience has really shown the cracks that already existed and that's Mm. not through um the the kind of the dis the NHS in itself but but as I said before just being time poor resource poor 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 you know Mm, it's so hard to deliver what we're trying to deliver to the country when you know we just don't have the means we don't have the support we don't have the the resource and i just i just really hope i really hope that this experience will as i said sort of expose the the discrepancies the inconsistencies for what they are and really kind of shine a light on on what needs to be done or or kind of how, how the NHS needs to be supported. Uh, I just, I really hope that people don't just, yeah. just think, oh, I've done my clapping now. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it goes back to that thing, isn't it? It's the investment. It's don't forget what's been done and what people have achieved. And, and the fact is, you know, we herald the vaccine rollout, which is going phenomenally well. And that is all down to the NHS and people like yourself and, you know, making it happen but 
it does need more support and more investment and funding for these things to be able to continue to happen because I think at the moment as well people are working it's almost on borrowed time isn't it like people will go beyond their shift just to get the job done and you know you kind of head down because you've absolutely got to respond right now but it's that's not sustainable forever I was just going to quickly say do you think um so obviously because your family are very involved in healthcare as well do you think this has made you like I you know you definitely tell it's it's made you even more proud of the organization do you think it's some do you think you could see yourself working there a long time or do you think actually the strain of it and like how mass I know you say that it's kind of just another day in the office but it has been something a bit more do you think it's made you think maybe I could do with a break after this or actually double down and this is where I need to be or or are you hearing from different colleagues people being like I just can't do this anymore I've definitely definitely had a lot of conversations with colleagues clinical and non-clinical um where they've said I think I've had enough um you know I think it's just I think they just feel a little bit almost like wronged not necessarily by the NHS but by I guess the powers that be um you know I think people just feel like it's not worth it anymore or I don't I don't know but um for me um I'm I'm not going to be going anywhere anytime soon like I I I I guess I kind of thrive thrive on the on the on the crises you have to be kind of you know like perverse to want to work in the NHS I guess because you know it's just going to be like (laughs) it's just like it's like a it's like a sick desire to always be kind of like you know crisis management and always be putting out fires and and feeling needed in that way I don't know it's 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 uh it's a addictive rush (laughs) I love that that summarizes it so well though (laughs) like from all the people I know who work in the NHS and who we've heard from today I don't know that's just so accurate (laughs) you have to be you have to want to put fires out yeah Yeah. it's just what you have you have to want to be in that environment and Covid has exacerbated it obviously yeah but yeah god (laughs) But yeah. it's exhausting and also the pension you know can't can't say <laughs> well what i will say thoroughly deserved so you know absolutely thor- thoroughly on. deserved oh, um, so I just had... when I'm 80. yeah when you're 18 <laughs> fine you retire yeah. i think i just had like one final question really just like a, a reflection um have you like did you have any thoughts on the roadmap obviously that's come out this week um as we're recording just any thoughts any concerns any jubilations this yeah thoughts on the roadmap really um I think I'm quite apprehensive about it I am I I completely think that you know it's it's appropriate we it's it's all of the the data um and I mean the graphs are going in the right direction right so that's really positive and obviously we can't be like this forever um so a roadmap is absolutely necessary I guess I just I'm just a bit I just don't want to do this again I just don't want mm. to go into another lockdown yeah. so I'm whilst I'm really pleased you know just on a personal level because I obviously want to get out there and start you know living life again um I just get a little bit apprehensive that people are gonna abuse uh, abuse their freedoms um and kind of take it take it out of out of hand um you know and I think also just like publishing the kind of the roadmap in that way like if people know that they can do x y and z from the 12th of April they're going to start doing it from the 12th of March if people don't know that they can start doing stuff in June they're going to start doing it in May and so because people are stupid 
um and everybody in this country loves to break the rules so yeah i guess well, they, i'm just yeah. i'm pleased i'm pleased and I'm, I'm i mean finally we have some clear guidance on something for once after about a year you know a year um <laughs> and that's great that they finally got the hang of that but um yeah it does make me a little bit apprehensive i just don't want to go into another lockdown i can't do yeah. it again <laughs> yeah i, I, I think we that. second that yeah. <laughs> absolutely and that and and that is i guess that maybe the parting gift is uh everyone just remember that the the roadmap is the earliest possible date and for us to get there we have to stick with compliance and follow the rules and that is how we'll get there but if we all start you know when you're allowed to sit in a garden going into into the homes we're not going to get there as mm-hmm. so absolutely protect the nhs save lives as they say <laughs> there you go and um i just want to say like on behalf of Tanisha and I and the nation thank you very much for your efforts <laughs> thank Lauren, you for everything and for like literally coming out of what your day job is and then helping with the vaccine process and setting up covid response wards and having to walk six plus miles to get to work so there and back there and back exactly so it's very I mean, appreciated we appreciate I could have just got a bike but um yeah and and like massive shout out to every every other person in the NHS is doing the same yeah. thing because it's like hundreds of thousands of people like every day. So, yeah, it's group effort. Shout out to the <laughs> NHS full stop. And that was great to hear from Lauren. I think a really different perspective from episode one. Um, I really feel like what was quite interesting is the juxtaposition between both of them and the fact that we definitely got like a a sense that the COVID experience in their jobs has has definitely impacted them in different ways. Um, I think where you have Lauren on the one side who has shown kind of the the impact of taking a corporate colleague um, and redeploying them and into, you know, into an environment that they may be less used to compared to Megan, who probably has, well, has more experience on the clinical side of things and has been redeployed as well. Um, I just thought it was really interesting and definitely emphasises the need to not forget anyone who has worked in the NHS, whether you're doing the admin side, whether you're administering the vaccine, whether you're helping people in the ICUs. We absolutely cannot forget everyone that has been, anyone at all who's been involved and absolutely make sure that necessary support services, I think, are available for those people in the longer term. Yeah, absolutely, because you're definitely going to have levels of PTSD across the NHS or you know anxiety and stress I think as well I've just thought about this actually that you know Meg talking about she reckons she's going to have a hang-up of anxiety about kind of mixing with her family on the longer term and and worrying that she's always going to bring it home so that's another example of Mm. kind of the day-to-day realities of when you've been in the hospitals working on the front line I think also interestingly both Meg and Lauren said that they would tell the government not to forget about the NHS fund it properly um at the time of recording this we have just had the budget um which is slightly controversial when it comes to the NHS um basically it didn't detail anything in terms of plans for the NHS there was no additional funding um you know unions have complained it was strangely silent on public services um and the Guardian kind of pointed out that the red book published alongside the statement Uh, the Chancellor's statement, which kind of has all the finer details, actually showed that the NHS England budget will fall. So we're going to move from 148 billion in 2020 to 21, that budget, to 139 billion for the 21 to 22 budget, which is like a massive 
uh, decrease. Which is substantial. And yet yeah. there's been cash injections for the vaccine rollout, but nothing else. Um, and health experts have said that actually this will kind of leave the NHS struggling to cope with the pandemic's challenging legacy. Um, you know, you've got backlog of surgery, increased mental illness, these sorts of things. And then uh, Saffron Caudry, I think you've pronounced that, um, the Guardian reports basically, who is the, the deputy chief executive of NHS providers, um, basically said that the government needs to commit to giving the NHS whatever it needs to deal with COVID. And I don't think this budget saw that so we'll have to keep an eye out on the spending no. review um but yeah so a bit of a challenge there and i think it does reaffirm that thing you know we were all out there clapping on a thursday night but we need to make sure that we are supporting the nhs funding it properly it's not just always going to be there if we don't yeah absolutely and i also think there's something that comes on to us as well like the members of the public and both of them kind both of our kind of interviewees referenced this they were kind of saying that whilst the roadmap that we now have from government is good and it's welcomed by many kind of in many circles, um, they both kind of said, we all have to be cautious. You know, we don't want to see people getting carried away. It's so important that we follow the rules that we have in place now. Um, and we, we, you know, we know what's coming, but that doesn't mean we should jump any sort of hoops. We don't want to lose any momentum with what's happening. Um, we know the vaccine rollout is going well, but that doesn't mean that we can, you know, cut corners now you know we've come so far um the roadmap's important but we shouldn't kind of we, we should do what we're doing continue on as we have been exactly so on that note do us a favor and on a serious note help save lives protect the nhs by continuing to do your part you know look forward to the release of lockdown as we've said everyone's very excited but let's be led by the science don't jump steps and be safe bye Bye.